1: Welcome to History Hack. If you
0: didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account, by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi, in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of Pole Position. We are back. We're having fun. I have more than one guest on today because I thought it would be fun to get together a load of people and have a great discussion and answer some silly questions that we put up on Twitter. So who have I got on with me today? I'm going to start with the lady, the lady who I've got on today. And that is Sam Napton, who is a uh, university professor, adjunct professor. I don't know. She works at a frigging university at the University of Nottingham. (laughs) She's awesome. She works on DPs. One of my bestest friends. Absolutely fabulous. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous historian. So we're going to have a lot of fun with Sam today. My second guest is, oh God, does he really need an introduction? It's Roger Morehouse. I mean, come on. If you don't know who Roger Morehouse is, go back onto the podcast go on to the internet, go on to Twitter. You'll figure you know who Roger Morehouse is. Fa- published fabulous books. We all know this. He is one of my favorite people on this planet. Well, except for Sam. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Hold on. I might be getting my, sticking myself into a grave here. They are two yeah. of my favorite people in this world. <laughs> third we've got we've got Conrad Werner who is a professor at the University of Warsaw he's not a historian he's a philosopher and I've kind of pulled this pulled him onto this why because I just thought it'd be fun uh just to kind of mix things up a little bit so hello to my wonderful guests onto my fabulous podcast hello everyone hello Lena. hello hi so we've got lots of questions we've put questions out onto Twitter we've got some um <sighs> the questions I'm not gonna ask that we're on Twitter, because uh, we're not going to go down some of these rabbit holes, because it's absolutely ridiculous. So I'm going to throw the first question out, because two of our guests obviously are not Polish, but they do work in Polish history. So Sam, why do you work on Polish history? Uh,
2: the short answer is that I'm not sure. <laughs> when I started doing uh, my PhD, it was very much more focused on Germany, and frankly, Poland was more interesting. So, what I ended up doing was actually looking at Poles within occupied Germany, but I've, I only kind of skirt around German issues and more focus on the Anglo Polish relationship and displaced persons camps. Uh, one of the other reasons is that even throughout my entire undergrad, master's, PhD, I didn't know anyone who taught Polish history at British universities. I know that some people definitely do, but it's very concentrated in particular departments. So, what we're actually seeing, this is a very long-winded answer, but what we're actually seeing now uh, especially at my universities we've got the children of ki- the children of people who came over in 2004 attending university and they came over at maybe t- two three years old and they don't know anything about Polish history and then all of a sudden Polish history is given as an option and they're really just clinging on to it and yeah the more I learn about it the more I'm interested in it so I, I have become a bit of a
0: formophile you've got to publish that book because i know people that keep asking dp questions and i can't answer them and i sound like an absolute idiot when i try and go down that road trying to remember the podcast that we uh we published a couple of uh, couple of years ago now isn't it i think mm, yeah it's been a while you've got to come back on and uh, t- up update us on some of your research roger mm. why polish history
1: yeah it's um well two two people two people's fault um the first one's lechno um, and the second one's Norman Davies. So, Lefowence, you know, I found, um, particularly 89, I just, I was, I found fascinating. And um, and everything that went before it, so the whole Solidarity thing, which was, which was to be fair, I mean, we're probably going to go on to, you know, how Polish history kind of um, always falls through the cracks. Um, but I think Solidarity was one of those moments where it kind of didn't, and it was on the evening news every evening when things happened in Poland. So I kind of got a bit obsessed with with him and with it uh, in the, in the sort of mid and late 80s. And then um and then 89 happened which I just found fascinating. And then I wanted to go back go to university, go I'd already left school and was working and you know. Um and I just found it all so fascinating. I thought I've got to go and study this. So I went to see the University of London specifically to do Central European history. Um and then I ended up in my third year doing Norman Davis's Modern, modern Polish course. Uh, loved that, um, loved Norman. And we ended up working together. So I was, I was he, he asked me to be his research assistant, which I did. Um, and it all sort of went from there. So, I mean, to some extent, I, a little bit like Sam, I, I kind of, I've kind of defaulted to some extent to German history, but then Polish history, like, like you said, Sam, is actually just much more interesting um it's it's more complex it there's there's um to a large extent there's a more appreciative and engaged audience for it um uh, which is important um so i actually like, like sam said I, I actually find polish history more interesting
0: when's your next book out
1: uh august in fantastic the
0: yeah we've got yeah. to come back you've got to come... i love the subject we're talking you're going to be talking about well the holocaust and the wadosh list, which many people don't yeah. know about yeah. so we're gonna get you on and do loads yeah, of stuff we'll come, come
1: and talk about it again.
0: Exactly. Uh, Let's ask our last guest, uh, Konrad, why are you not a Polish historian?
3: It's a good question, but uh, actually I don't know. I'm very much interested in history, Polish history included, of course. But if I am supposed to add anything to this question of why studying Polish history when you are not Polish, uh, I can share a kind of related issue, namely there seems to be something attractive in Polish cultural legacy, so to speak, not necessarily Polish history itself. And my, if I can, I don't share this story uh, very often, but the story of my family is a particular example of that. Namely, my family came from Germany or German territories, so to speak. And so they made a choice to be Polish at some point. Mm. And I guess that there are many people Uh, in history, recorded in history, who actually made such a choice, coming from all around the place. And so there must be something quite attractive. And I wonder, what is your perspective, what you think of this attractiveness of Polish legacy, that perhaps well, after all, I'm a philosopher, so I have to speak of ideas. So perhaps there is a certain idea of being Polish, and this idea is surprisingly sexy, so to speak.
1: Yeah.
3: And so, I wonder what you think about it. But as I said, it's it's not a, it's not an academic issue. Uh, but still, yeah. I'm very curious about it.
1: I get that. Can I? Can I? Can I jump in there, Lena? Of course, you can. Take it um, over. Go I for get, it. I get that entirely. I think. That- I think there's two things. I just mentioned when I was uh, answering the previous question. For us as Brits, you know, you do feel when you do Polish history to some extent, you're sort of you're, you're banging your head against some a sort of a brick wall because you know, for a lot of people, I'm sure Sam would say the same. There's kind of just no recognition at all. You know, it's, uh, a lot of people couldn't even find Poland on the map, uh,
3: and, there's no under-
1: and there's no understanding of Polish history like at all. Um, they so not nothing even to kind of latch onto. Um so which makes it makes it quite difficult but that's that also is quite part of the challenge is quite part of the appeal I think. Um but then to go back to what Conrad was just saying I think it is that it, and to me it's like you know Poland's certainly in the uh, the modern period so sort of you know from from the partitions on effectively. Um the modern period. Polish history is so full of unbelievable jeopardy you know that 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 there's there's risings there's times when Poland didn't exist and then you know what's what's the Polish nation going to do it's occupied by three countries blah 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 you know all that all that stuff that we know there's so such such tremendous jeopardy at any point I think you know that that actually makes it absolutely fascinating to me because it, it, it could have gone in any possible direction. Uh, And yet you end up with, you know, what we have since since 89. You've got a democratic, you know, Poland that's that's, uh, uh, you know, now, certainly since last year, absolutely integral part of the EU and playing a hugely vital role in the whole situation with Ukraine. Um, This this wasn't a given that you'd have this this end result. And I just, I find it's the jeopardy in it, in the modern period that I find that I find so fascinating.
0: I've got a question, Roger. Who was the, because this is an idea of identity, which I, again, I find this fascinating. I'm going to bring this onto the table because I mean, I'm going to simplify it, obviously, because it's much more complex than this. And this is something I wanted to cover On the podcast, but it's proving to be difficult for any Polish historian who wants to speak English to be able to come on the podcast and talk about Polish identity. But there was, and you're going to have to remind me, the name of this was an admiral or a general during the invasion of Poland. He was uh, from German roots. What was his name? Unruh yeah and he basically when he met up with the germans he refused to speak german he was like he fully understood everybody it was like my identity is polish and this is this that's it that we don't go beyond this
1: so he 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 actually spoke supposedly only rudimentary polish he was essentially german he was you know i think raised in germany he'd certainly served i think he even served in the german navy in the first world war uh and then he'd because of that you know the identity was through his parents and so on he he kind of um, joined the Polish Navy in the Second Republic, so post World War One, got, got to the rank of admiral, very senior man, and was, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, was he, was he the commander of the Hell Peninsula? Was that what it was?
0: Yes, yes,
1: that uh, one, yeah. And then he was taken prisoner by the Germans and promptly refused to speak any German with them. All the way through his, his imprisonment, by the way, he was in prison for most of the war, uh, all the way through, he, he had to have an interpreter, even though he spoke better german than he did polish which i think is just hilarious
0: (laughs) and sam how do you come across in this i mean this idea of being polish especially being i mean let's bring something else to the table being british and working in polish history this obviously has a lot of hurdles within it for example from my own perspective i have two foots in each camp I'm very lucky. It's easy for me. I speak the language. I communicate well. I can read da-da-da-da-da and everything else. But I also face hurdles, not as much as you guys, obviously. So tell us a little about some of these kind of hurdles that you guys face.
2: Um, Well, first and foremost, just the Polish language is is a massive hurdle. Um, I am just extremely stubborn. So what I ended up doing was going to night classes for four years while doing the PhD. And then eventually got some funding um to be in Svovica for a few weeks uh, at the European University of Adrena, And then eventually last year, as you know, I was in Warsaw for five months uh, because I was a junior research fellow at the Poletic Institute. And that very much accelerated my ability to speak Polish. And um, so language is definitely the major thing because Brits in general just are terrible at languages. They, And this is like very much a fault of the school system within itself, but also this idea of exceptionalism. Everyone speaks English, therefore we don't need to learn anything else. But when you don't speak another language, you're not just li- losing that ability to communicate with other people, you're losing so many other things as well. Just empathy for one, cultural understanding, just all of those things. Um, so language is utmost uh, biggest hurdle. I have had quite a few people, I wouldn't say have a go, but maybe aren't you happy about the fact that I don't have Polish roots and I'm doing Polish history because it's it it's very much to them in particular I think it's very much it's their history what, what am I doing with it sort of thing
3: That's so this is the other
2: hurdle that i come across quite a bit <clears throat> as I said I, I do German and Polish history I do find Polish history especially uh, now a lot more interesting but I've never I never came across this in Germany and I think a large or a big reason for that is because so many people have been involved with German history and talking about German history for so long that it's kind of been it's not that it is their history, but it doesn't quote unquote belong to them. The rest of the world has pitched in; they've, they've given their opinions, they've written books about them, etc. Like some of the major scholars are British for German history, whereas the same can't be said about Polish history. Norman Davies, obviously, amazing scholar. Robert Frost, for instance, amazing scholar, but there's only a small handful. Yeah. And it's that in itself is, a, is quite a barrier. There is a, definitely a protectionism around public history, I think, as well. Um, and we are in no way here to be like, you know, this is bad, this is good, or whatever. What we're interested in is just trying to understand it and actually communicate it to the wider public mm-hmm. a little bit more, especially in Britain for me, because so many people are interested in it, but they just know nothing cool. about it. As Roger said, like, it's, it's kind of like, it sounds horrible. It's not, it's the new shiny thing. In many ways because people are inundated with tv programs about Germany they already think they know everything so it is really hard to teach undergrad students about German history in general because they just parrot back documentaries whereas Polish history they don't know anything so <laughs> they either have to really engage or give up and many of them really engage because they, you know as soon as they hear about the partitions and as Roger even said I know I've been talking for a while now so apologies. Um, As Roger even said, like, it's this whole, like, jeopardy thing. Like, so so many students have no idea that this even happens. They even get, like, a taste of it. And they're like, "But what happened next? Poland is a country. What are you saying that Poland didn't exist? And I'm like, yeah, literally, like, didn't exist. And they just don't understand it, can't comprehend it. And it's, it's kind of like, it just hooks them in.
1: Yeah. yeah, I get I get that that it, it is infectious. I get that a lot with, you know, I get um, you know, readers when I mean I I sort of work in a slightly different world to you Sam, you know. I I'm, I'm sort of um where I give a talk and it's sort of public facing or whatever. And then you get um you get people who, you know, there's because because I've done German history as well, so what I in my head what I'm trying to do, you know, the the the, the German history books has a sort of set market, you know um world war 2 Nazi Germany that everybody knows that stuff and people will go out and buy you know every book that comes out on on Nazi Germany or world war 2 whatever it is they won't necessarily buy a book on you know the September campaign or the Polish underground or whatever it might be because it's Poland and they don't know anything about Poland right so they have this sort of barrier but what if you do both like that then you can almost try and drag the people the readership from the German stuff and drag them into polish history and go okay you know all that but what about this this stuff is really interesting and i've had people come up to me and say exactly that right and say well, I, I bought your book on berlin and and then i bought that one on on september 39 and i just couldn't put it down i thought it was amazing i've never known anything about polish history so you're kind of dragging them into this strange world which is actually only the country next door right and it's actually a related history but it's just one that we never cover <clears throat> so i complete and it, like you're saying, it, it's. Com- it, I get that, that it's completely infectious, actually, the sort of fascination with it. Um, and I don't know quite what that is. Maybe it is what we're saying about the sort of the jeopardy and stuff and the sort of sheer drama of it. Um, but it is definitely infectious. But the other thing, like, riffing on what you just said, they, um, you said that there was that sort of sense, a little bit of protectionism with some polls, you know, towards you. I mean, that's, that's something I haven't ever had, I have to say. I think the polls have always... All those that i 've ever interacted with are kind of they're kind of delighted that somebody i think there's a that somebody in the outside world as they would see it is interested right because I think one of the strands of poland's um, many and varied neuroses and we all have them every nation has them but one of the strands of Poland's neuroses is that the outside world doesn't care and isn't interested um, and so consequently whenever you know whenever i in that situation and people go you know oh, have you got polish forebears and i say no you know nothing um so you know that question always comes up why do you do polish history well you know as i've said before normal davis and influenza and they're kind of fascinated and that and it's always been a positive conversation there's never been that sense of of sort of you know a sort of proprietorial you know concern you know why are you doing this um <clears throat> There's a, there's an engage, there's a level of engagement with Polish history in the public sphere which is way beyond you get what you get in German history. In German history, generally, people certainly Germans just kind of shrug and they go, "Oh, it's another foreigner doing German history. Oh, great," you know. And they kind of, mm, "I bet they're doing the usual suspects," you know. Uh, yeah, fair enough. But you know, Polish history is it, it, it's real engagement, and people are kind of they can be aggressively interested. But I've never I've never had that sort of um, rejection thing. Yeah, just clarify.
2: I've had I've had both
1: right. things.
2: So I have uh, had people be like, "Oh my God, you're an outsider who wants to talk about Polish history. That's amazing," but the academic level. I've definitely experienced
0: the why are you doing this. This isn't
2: your history.
1: Okay, I mean, that's, that's the
0: reason. There is the big divide between academia and public history, right. because no offense to my public. Uh, sorry, no offense to my academic friends in Poland. I know some fantastic academics. One is sitting in the room right now. But at the end of the day, they're very closed off when it comes to talking about public history. And I say, well, why aren't we not engaging further on in in the Western world? Oh, well, like Roger, you say, oh, well, they don't understand us and they'll never understand. Well, hold on a second. But if we start educating, we start speaking about it, we start bringing Mm. it to light and making it more engaging, exciting and interesting, people are going to want to know and hear more about it. So you've Mm. got you, Sam, on one hand, where you're trying to push through academia as there are other academics doing the same. And Roger, there's less public historians trying to push on polish history so it's kind of this this unbalanced weight between the two mm. and we still have to crack this and then the other issue for me the biggest issue for me is that well we've discussed this but language now not everybody is able to learn polish as we very well know it's a very difficult language and having access to sources it's really difficult students for example sam you've come across this problem where your students can't read the sources because they're in polish Mm. And how are we going to come across this? How are we going to get over this barrier? Well, we have to start translating more. And this is what I'm trying to push mm. for. Polish institutes uh, and funding and the government, and whoever the hell wants to get involved, is to start helping translating all of these documents, and which will make it readily accessible to mm. academics, to people. And then people can look at it from a completely different perspective. And this is what history is all about. There's not just one side of the story. You interpret it, well, obviously, there's certain facts that are one certain story, but you people interpret things differently. That's why you have different books written on different perspectives, how this was, where, why, and how, and
1: that's what we need more of. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And certainly, you know, there's the, the, the recent, uh, well, comparatively recent series of uh, diplomatic documents that's been published by PISM, you know, in, um, in English, which is fabulous. I mean, that's a great thing. And of course, you know, you you were involved with, with the most recent of those, Elena. Um, but but that you know that that is really really useful, and that can stand alongside you know the FRUs and the DGFPs, um, you know documents on German foreign policy, because it's all in translation. So there's no reason for for Western scholars, particularly on the you know on the dim- diplomatic level, all of that material's there, and it's all in translation. So you know, get out and use it. And so you know, PhD students, you can you can do that um if you're doing polish di- diplomacy absolutely so it's, you know, yeah. that's that is absolutely the direction you have to go but the but there's a bigger problem here which is that i think poland itself um whether that's you know government circles or um you know academia or the media whatever it is is still too is still too obsessed with talking to itself uh particularly with history right. Um, I think they need, to, and it is coming. It's sort of slowly coming. Um, you know, there was, that, there was that small foreign ministry prize for for foreign language history books, which I uh, was was uh, very pleased to have won a couple of years ago. But that's a good example of trying to encourage, to encourage the outside world to write about Polish history, right? I had I to throw, in. Sorry, I had to I had throw to, it in there. I had
0: to laugh. <laughs> you got, I'm muted here and I'm laughing so loudly.
1: <laughs> but, that, but that's a good example of trying to open up you know, the, uh, and encourage the outside world, not the non-Polish world to write about Polish history. And there are other examples. But then you get, then you get something like, you know, that I always bang on about this, the Katyn Museum in Warsaw and I I love the Katyn museum I think it's brilliant but still you know the the argument I always have with them is that you know the the captioning and stuff there is some captioning in English but it it all needs to be in English how can you spread the word about Katyn without you know English language captioning it just doesn't work so you know there's still there's still work to be done and it's a mindset problem as a, as much as anything you know, there there's still there's still too much of that mentality of of L- literally talking to themselves and not talking to the outside world. You yeah, know I that? was
2: actually going to ask you, Conrad, to, to jump in on this because I was wondering what your perspective was from, like, you know, history adjacent discipline essentially. Is this a thing in philosophy as well?
3: To some extent, yes, but it's becoming less and less relevant, so to speak, because people are much more, I don't want to say open minded, but perhaps more courageous, as mm-hmm. it were. And this relates to what I what I wanted to say, namely, uh, so one thing is, um, actually, I have one question and one remark. So perhaps I will start from, from uh, the remark. So I guess that Polish academia is, so to speak, closed because going out, outside the academic circles, strictly speaking, is just more challenging. So it's just more difficult. There are certain frameworks in which you you must fit, let's say, and you have to communicate within a, within a certain academic framework. And you can master the language of this academic, specifically academic communication. Uh, usually, it, it is uh, 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 English, but it it does not have to be English. But usually, it is English, and so. You can master this Congress English, so to speak, and you can fit this specifically academic framework and you can feel um uh, safe within this framework. Whereas going out and doing certain, you know, doing this reach out to a wider public,
2: mm-hmm.
3: it's a completely different standard. Also, mm-hmm. when it comes to your English capacities and you have to struggle, I'm right now struggling doing this thing. <laughs> so it's just more difficult so uh, i would let's say set it forth as a kind of explanation of why polish academia is not that open or or not sufficiently open if i can put it this way uh but it's i guess it's 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 going to change sooner or later so this is one remark and then there comes a question i wonder to what extent when you have people who get familiar at least to some extent with polish history Uh, i wonder what is your impression do they treat this 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 specific uh, uh, uh history i mean polish history as something original quite exotic but not necessarily part of the of universal history or european history in general but something just just something interesting or perhaps they spontaneously take Polish history as part of this more universal history that you cannot understand certain things happening, for example, in in the 16th century Europe Mm. without Poland. Or perhaps they just take it as something interesting because I see a difference here regarding something as interesting but still quite exotic and regarding Mm. something as interesting and being part of this universal history.
0: Before we so, jump into this question, I just want to add one comment, and I completely and utterly agree with you with the language barrier thing. I had a debate in Apollo last weekend where I had to do the debate in Polish. My God, can I explain to you all the terror that went inside me, and I literally cried myself before I had to do it. It was so difficult, and I was forgetting words, and I forgot how I wanted to say something when in English it would take me three minutes to explain what I wanted to say in Polish. My God, I was sitting there babbling on for five minutes going, Oh, did I just say what I wanted to say sitting on my phone and Googling words? It was absolutely beyond terrifying that I had to sit there. So I have had experiences both ways and I completely commend any of my friends who do are Polish speakers and who have to go out and do conferences or talks or whatever in English. You guys are awesome. And anybody who does that, I think it's absolutely amazing. Anyway, back to the question. I see Roger, Roger, Roger's ready to go with, uh, with a comment.
1: I was going to throw it at Sam, actually, horribly. I was going to throw Sam in on that one.
0: I've got to uh, make Sam do it. That's to fine. To
1: answer, answer Conrad's question. I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've got a view on that, but uh, I was going to throw Sam in because, you know, she's an I, academic. I, so. I
2: can do it from a, a teaching <laughs> point of view, uh, definitely. So, yeah, I mean... At first, I think the initial reaction is one of exo- exoticism, yeah. where they're just kind of like, oh, this is new, this is different. You know how you used the, use the word sexy before I used the word shiny? Is this something sexy, shiny, new? And initially, that is the reaction if they're only taught one part of history. And in my experience, it's you then need to push them to make them see that it is part of a, a bigger structure. So, for instance, I am not an early modernist historian, and this year I taught on the Masters in Early Modern History, in Nottingham because there was no one else to teach about the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. So I spent a good three weeks preparing for a four hour session because I was terrified I was going to mess it up. Um, but what the feedback that I actually got from the students at the end was that it was kind of like a missing piece to the puzzle essentially because they've been so focused on Britain and France and you know places that are now, you know, Spain and Italy, etc. Um, but they didn't know anything about this. And I was like, really? Because it was massive. So you would have thought at some point someone would have connected that, but they every single one there was only eight in the class, but every single one of them in their essays brought in the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, and they didn't realise how integral it was. Um, they so sort of what? Sorry, the way that the class actually runs is they have a two-hour session, then three days later they have another two-hour session. So the first two-hour session was me just telling them what the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth is and then discussing it, and then the second one was when they came back and they were like, "My God, this actually makes." Much more sense. In the modern period, it's very much the same, but to get students to understand that it isn't this just shiny thing that's abnormal and that's why we want to look at it, what I tend to do is teach Polish history in relation to the countries that are surrounding it, because they're much more familiar with, unfortunately, German and Russian history than they are with Polish. So if I can relate it that way, then they see how it's part of a bigger whole uh, more than anything. I know Norman Davis would love this, but my second year option is called In the Heart of Europe. modern histories of Poland, and it very much starts with like this the idea of whether or not Poland is a colony or a coloniser, at the end of the 19th century, and then it goes right up to uh, Lekwansa, like, essentially. But, and this is much harder as well, because students don't have any sort of, the only way that I can ground them in knowing this history is by teaching them it in relation to Germany and Pol- uh, Russia at the same time, because otherwise it's just like, okay, so Poland... <laughs> Um, and, that, and that way, they see it as
1: a bigger whole rather than just this exoticism. It's I mean, that's that's where I—that's that, that, where I was going to come in as well. Is that in you know, talking about the the, the 20th century, um, you know, our schools and universities, to a large extent, for a long time, have sort of majored on you know Nazi Germany, the Soviet Union, Cold War. Um, you know, the Holocaust obviously looms very large, and yet, in spite of all of that, and and you know in spite of all of that, Poland still sort of falls through the cracks. And yet, you know, if you if you if you kind of put one eye on Poland through that period, you see it's absolutely central to everything, to all of the other stuff. But right? because it's the it's the sort of it's the expansion target for both both uh states that we're talking about, Germany eastward and, and the Soviet Union westward. Um it's you know, if you talk about the Holocaust, you know, half of the dead dead of the Holocaust are Polish Jews and most of the most of the killing of the Holocaust takes place on Polish soil, right? So it's absolutely central to that as well. So how how it manages to sort of slip through the cracks in the in the English speaking historiography, I still don't quite understand, because it, it you know it should be absolutely front center. So it's quite a feat of kind of you know um, uh, uh, myopia that we collectively don't see Polish history. But once people do begin to see it, this is come back to Conrad's question. Once people do begin to see it. I mean, it initially does have that exotic element. You know, the names and the language is, is tremendously exotic and, you know, very foreign and, you know, looks like a bad hand at Scrabble. All of that stuff, you know, there's all, the, all those jokes that we've all been, been uh, grown up with over the last 20 years. Um, but then once you begin to see it and understand it, it actually makes, it, it becomes the key to almost everything else. You know, certainly in that modern period, if you look at, you know, like I said, Nazi Germany, Soviet Union, Uh, you can't understand that without looking at Poland as well
4: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time
2: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
4: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: So it's a bit of both. You see it as the appeal is initially the exoticism, uh, and then it it becomes an integral part of that grand sweep that you're talking about, Colin.
0: Let's, uh, let's rattle a few things.
1: And I just
0: think one thing. Go
3: for it. Because um, but when it comes to the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, on the one hand, it was large and powerful, at least uh, for some time. But the problem that we have in Poland, in our consciousness, let's say, uh, is that this country, I mean, the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, itself became irrelevant at some point so yeah. at the beginning of, of 18th century it's completely irrelevant when it comes to uh being a subject of history not just not just uh, uh let's say an object or a victim of history so um to some extent it's our fault our own fault so to speak that we uh allowed for a situation uh, in 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 which we became irrelevant, so it's no wonder that people regard us as irrelevant. If uh, we actually became irrelevant at some point, yeah, and, and that, anyway, of course yeah. we lost our independence.
1: I mean, that, and this is this is I I've made this argument before, and I'm not sure if it's entirely entirely empirical but i'm not sure it's entirely wrong either is that you know crucially um europe's you know most of europe's universities are certainly that sort of massive massive expansion of the university system in the 19th century um coincides with and the development of of the idea of public history as well which kind of isn't much of a thing before that 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 period coincides with a period when where where poland doesn't exist it's not on the map right And I think that's that's partly why, you know, you've got universities that have very well established German studies department, German language department, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there must be 100 or 200, you know, of those departments in European, in British universities. And the same thing to a lesser degree, but the similar similar story with Russia and Russian history. Uh, And then how many I don't know if Sam knows, but how many departments of Polish history are there in British universities? A handful. You know, so, but, but I think that the root goes back. You know, nineteenth century. It goes back to that. That's the beginning of public history as a sort of, as a, a, a as a discipline in a way, and as a as a, a way of looking at the world. And it coincides with the time when when Poland didn't exist. I think that's that's not accidental.
0: Sam, do you want to add anything before I move on our conversation? Uh, well, just you know,
2: yes. <laughs> <laughs> so when I started putting this second year module together, by the way, this module it hasn't actually run yet. It's been running this year for the first time because so it's taken so long to put together because I need enough sources in translation to be able to even just run it. So doing some of it myself, asking the leader for help with some of it, and then also having those wonderful works that we were talking about before. But just in the UK, I was looking at other examples of modules just on modern Polish history and there's handful, a small handful. So you've got the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at UCL, and there isn't a modern Polish history module anymore. There are ones that are uh, tied to film and literature, but not history. But, like, not history-specific one. And then there's a rather big collective in Aberdeen that focuses on the Polish way in Commonwealth. Um, That's what we're from. Other for. than that, yeah, exactly. And then other than that, it's just smatterings here and there. Few in Cambridge, few in Oxford, some at Warwick. But it's just it's very few in, oh, and some at Manchester. It's just very few and far apart.
0: Mm. Okay, let's That's do a shame. little bit of history fun, I think. Uh, just to shake things up a little bit. We've been quite serious. Let's not get so serious now. So we're gonna to stick to the polish uh, Ukrainian Commonwealth. And as Sam has taught a module on this, I thought she'd give us a summary of why Jan Sobieski was such a great military leader. Go. He
2: was not.
0: No, I'm kidding. I have no clue. I don't know. I, I, I'm winding <laughs> you up. I thought it would be fun. Never mind. No. Let's move... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to pick on Roger, but I thought you're the easier target right now. Okay. Am,
2: so, thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, let's look at this. So, we've got some questions up. I'm not going to read all of them because, again, we don't need to be too depressing. So, let's Sorry, think. But the about... problem
3: is that he was not such a big king. He was a big military, great military leader, but mm. not that big a king. And this is a problem, but just, sorry, sorry, I had
0: to jump in. I I mentioned the leader thing. So you didn't mention King. I mentioned the leader thing. So I was on the right track. By the way, I had to use Google for this because I'm awful at that time period. So we've got a a question from Alex. I'm going to read it out. So uh, who is the one person whose historical standing has changed either negatively or positively in the most recent times in terms of Polish history? Sam, you've got to have someone that you think...
2: Um, well, I guess, uh, Vito Pilecki, because he's not really, I mean, he's, he's now well known, uh, but he, he wasn't for quite a long time. And that's because basically his legacy was suppressed under the PRL, under the, uh, communist controlled regime. So we're now finding out a lot more about Pilecki. I mean, there's the Pilecki Institute that obviously kind of carries his name, but then in popular circles as well, we've got Jack Fairweather's book, for instance, The Volunteer. Um, that has come out and started talking about Pilecki. So there's really, um, it's an opening up of like shining a spotlight on particular individuals within Polish history, but also to tell like a wider story. So I think Pilecki is a good example of that.
0: I love it. I love Pilecki. It's a great story and a story that deserves to be told more widely. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Can I throw someone into this? I mean, I don't really want to talk about it, but... Thinking. <laughs> what are you talking? I, I don't know. I just, I just, I just want to mention it because it is, it is a bit of a hot topic. And funny enough, uh, he came up twice on uh, the news today, and one on social media, and somebody else posted something on Reddit. Is Lech Wałęsa? Because funny enough, Roger's mentioned him yeah. already today. I was and going to mention Wałęsa in this context. Yeah, but. let's. I think let's talk about. I mean, we. I want to cover a couple of other questions, so let's not be too long on it, but. So, for example, he was always seen as this as this hero, especially during the solidarity movement. he was president, et cetera et cetera But in the most recent years, and we know this is also to do with politics, and it's a much deeper rooted cause that we probably would need a whole six hours to probably delve into and explain, mm. but he has been seen much more negatively Could it be due to age could it be i don't know i don't know i don't know Would would? yeah throw
1: your was, hat in this. when you when you ask the question that that that's the name that I immediately had and i and partly partly because, as I said at the beginning, you know he was very much at the root of my interest in polish history and i to be honest i still i still would count him as a as one of my heroes, so he's someone that I kind of don't want to have toppled in that sense um and i don't and i and for that reason I d de- i haven't really you know looked into the 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 issue of you know his potential complicity and so on with the communist regime informant um so it's not it's a, to, you know it's very unhistorical but it's not really my period but i have just kind of you know averted my gaze a bit because i don't want my one of my heroes to be uh to be toppled in that way um okay. so yeah but he's one that i would i would put into that category whose who's, uh, who's, uh perception has has changed public perception has changed radically um and as you say i appreciate a lot of that is is political um but uh you know i i still i'm still stuck on you know that that um heroic figure for the 1980s i think and the way i mean we all, we know how the way communist systems work i mean they work by um effectively compromising people in a to a large scale uh, and then and using that then as leverage to to make people do what they want them to do or to do nothing either way um it's a very insidious way of working um and if that suggestion that he was an informant for the communists is true um it doesn't necess- it doesn't sort of you know doesn't uh, detract in my in my mind from you know the, the, the amazing things that he did as well um if anything you know, if he was if he was a communist agent he was the worst communist agent that, that there has ever been because he he contributed to the collapse of communism so you know who won there
0: should i throw one more into the hat go so recently very recently in poland there was a a, a bit of a, a useless scandal was pointless i mean obviously around the world we all know who john paul ii was you know yeah. karol wojtyla and recently in polish politics this is some smearing started going on that he he knew about uh, all of these scandals of priests and young boys and things. But his Uh. his support has not changed, but people are trying to look at it from a different perspective. So that's something that I'm kind of throwing a little bit in the hat. I, I recently went to Washington, D.C., and went to the Shrine of John Paul II. And the things he did, especially in his time as Pope, was absolutely incredible, especially for someone who didn't live through the communist period and actually watched through an exhibition and through uh, videos of what he did. Incredibly powerful person. So hopefully his stance will not change. I don't know if Sam wants to jump in on this.
2: I, I have no idea if his stance, uh, if his view will change.
1: I think it's part. I mean, it's interesting. I think it's part of that. Um, I was in Ireland uh, last month. gave a couple of lectures in Dublin, and in in a in a sort of strange way, I see there's 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 often parallels, um, both historically and in other in another sense between Ireland and Poland. Um, you know, the the Catholicism, the you know, the, the the in a sense, the small country living as a as the plaything of a big country. Um, in Poland's case, two big countries. Um, the perception that they are on you know like with the British looked down on Ireland historically, they see Ireland as more primitive um not now obviously but, but in history, and in the same way the Germans looked out looked down on Poland and saw Poland as more primitive than they were um and that st- that was tied up with their Catholicism and all of that stuff it was all part and parcel in that Protestant mind of the of the Catholic other. Um so in that sense I think there's kind of similarities. And then you look at it now and you've got Poland is still kind of resolutely Catholic uh, resolutely Catholic. Um and that sort of certainly compared to Ireland, which is you know in the last twenty years has had this really galloping secularisation, um a lot of it led by this revulsion against you know the the um the crimes and misdemeanours of the Catholic Church. So uh in Ireland. So um I wonder if that is a sort of a a coming parallel, perhaps. If not, let you know, take it away from... Uh, let's take this of not sort of depersonalise it away from the from the from uh, from John Paul II, but to look at maybe that that's the sort of a Trojan horse for a, a, a coming um, revolt against or a questioning of Catholicism more, more thoroughly in Poland. Maybe that's coming in the same way as it has in Ireland in the last 20 years, which is now almost, you know, certainly... Obviously, Dublin's not representative of the whole country, but you know you can see that it's uh, um, that you know the Catholic Church has it, the grip that it had twenty, thirty years ago on Ireland has has been substantially loosened, if not shattered entirely, uh, which is remarkable. Uh, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a good or bad thing; it's just a remarkable thing. Um, and maybe maybe what we're seeing there with criticism of the of the the former Pope is 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 the beginnings of. of a more resolute questioning of Catholicism in Poland as well. Konrad,
0: want to jump in on this at all? Anything to add?
3: Well, I'm not a specialist in all the church issues, but I would hope for some change in the perception of John Paul II, and on, not in political terms, but in philosophical terms, because, well, his role in, 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 in the collapse of of, of uh, communism and so on and so forth it's undeniable uh it's it's obvious but so the problem is that on the one hand we have this great figure political figure which is fine i mean but this is not the only aspect and on the other hand we have this childish saint Not a saint in the proper sense, but this childish representation of of the saint. All these terrible monuments and, you know. uh, Whereas I would say that we have to, or we have to, we don't have to, but it would be nice to rediscover John Paul II as a a thinker, as a philosopher. After all, he was uh, a professor of Philosophy, ethics, in particular, before he became uh, a cardinal and archbishop of Krakow, of so he was a poet as well. So there is this intellectual dimension. That I hope that I hope that it's it's strange, but I hope that um, because of all these accusations people will start to investigate more will start ask more questions about this particular man and therefore they will discover or rediscover this man as quite an interesting figure mm-hmm. and i know it's 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 not a direct link from all these controversies there's no direct link from all these controversies going on right now to the intellectual figure but Perhaps there is some kind of indirect link. And I hope that, that that if people start to talk, they will also rediscover this intellectual dimension. Because it's, I mean, I'm not a specialist in Catholic thought, in Catholic philosophy, if there is such a thing. According to Father Bohensky, there is no such a thing. But if there is such a thing, uh, as Catholic or Christian thought, Karol Wojtyla is quite a significant figure in this in this specific environment and 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 he should be rediscovered
0: i like that nice little nice little ending to that uh that little part of the discussion i was going to not allow roger to talk about the polish cavalry because there is a there is a question but we are slightly running a little bit out of time each of our guests is going to have to go to this one important question and that's your myth Inaccuracy. What really pisses you off in your research that people keep repeating and repeating and repeating, and you just want them to shut up? And I want to let Sam take the floor first. I don't know why, because you know why? Because on my screen, you're the first one on the screen, (laughs) so you're always being thrown under the bus first. Sam, what pisses you off in your research the most? What crap do people keep sprouting?
2: Well. Yeah, you mentioned this to me very recently as well, um, is that people think of displaced persons camps as some sort of holiday camp after the war where people just were in pure luxury, just lying around waiting to be taken home or resettled elsewhere. And the truth of the matter is, I mean, many displaced persons camps, some of them were very nice, um, but it still wasn't a pleasant experience. I think a lot of people conflate this idea of displaced persons camps and being a refugee uh, and the end of the war with, um, I don't know. Somehow they see it as like being a modern day prisoner, where you're given an Xbox or whatever in your jail cell, that sort of thing. They think they're sitting there in luxury, just waiting to be transported home with all of the necessities and things that they need. When in actual fact, you know, you've got about, I don't know, a hundred families within an abandoned warehouse that are separating their cubicles using blankets. For the kids, it's great fun. Most of the time, they're running around playing with other kids that they've never seen before, so they're having a wonderful time. But for adults, it is horrendous. And especially for, as you, you know, if you read my book, um, <laughs> the Polish displaced persons in the British zone, they're constantly getting pulled apart from other Polish displaced persons in order to enforce, essentially, boredom and to make sure that there are lack of opportunities in British occupied Germany so that they will repatriate so there's this constant pulling apart and just enforced idleness. And then they get blamed for also being idle. So, yeah, just people thinking the displaced persons can have some sort of like nice relaxation spa after the war that the Allies are paying for. And it's luxurious in some sort of way is definitely not true.
0: Did they have an orchestra? Ah, oh,
2: this question again.
1: That's um, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, no, this is this is one of the things that Vina and I have spoken about before in, uh, in the podcast that we did. Is because the British wouldn't even allow Polish Displaced Persons Council to have an orchestra after October 1946 because then you're just too entertained, apparently. So there was a a law brought in on the first of October 1946 that said any Polish Displaced Persons camp with 100 or more Polish Displaced Persons um, cannot have any recreational educational activities. So they were essentially enforcing boredom. Wow,
0: that's
2: harsh. Yeah. So no, no orchestras.
0: I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use the comment, that's why I asked you if there was an orchestra. I'm not I'm not gonna repeat that comment because I'm gonna have to edit myself no. out anyways. <laughs> Roger, I will allow you to go yeah. forth with your well,
1: cavalry. Um, yeah, the cavalry thing. So the you know, the great myth of the Polish cavalry charging German tanks, which still rumbles around. I mean I'm trying I'm trying to kill it um, you know, one lecture at a time. Um it does drive me drive me a bit nuts. Um, I think it's getting less and less. I think you know, having having the book the book coming out first fight in the UK and it was called Poland Thirty Nine in in uh, the US. Um, I think that's that might you know hopefully we can try and kill it off, um, expose it to the um, the the chill winds of truth, uh, and kill off the idea that they uh, charge charge tanks on horseback. I mean, it's an interesting. I I go through it all in the book, so I'm not going to re rehash re- it here. Uh, anyone that's interested, buy the book. That's all I'm going to say. Um, Hold on, you know, they... is that a way to get people to buy your book? Yeah, absolutely, shameless. But then the other, the other thing I'd interestingly say, I mean, this this is um, talking about undergrounds. So I've been doing a bit of work on Polish underground recently, and one of the th- and a slight, it's slight, slight tangent to your question, but you know, the, this sort of British obsession with the Maquis, the French underground, um, which comes from, I think, you know, a, a little bit of people like my generation grew up with hello hello and then, a, 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 people a bit older than me grew up with, you know, it was it called Secret Army? And that's sort of, that, that drama series about the French Resistance and so on. Um, and you know, there's this sort of lazy, and you, you see it occasionally in, you know, in public history, but this sort of lazy description of the French the French Resistance as being the sort of the most thoroughgoing resistance organisation in in, um, in time of Europe. And you think, now hang on. So my second rant would be about would be that you know how the hell did the uh, the Polish Underground fall through the memory hole as well, um, because it's infinitely more interesting, thoroughgoing, uh, efficient, uh, every, you know everything than the Maquis. Um and uh, you know let's let's restore that to the historical record rather than uh, carry on lauding the, 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 the Maquis, which is not really not worth uh, that much interest really.
0: I'm going to add to this because I, I don't care what anybody says. Any of my historian friends that are going to criticise me on this, you can go jog on. I love, and my grandfather, before he died, obviously, he was watching it, is trust uh, Honoro, or in English, Time of Honour. It's a great series. Okay, so it's not based on a 100% truth. And yes, they compiled hundreds of different testimonies to kind of create this idea of resistance in Poland. But it's great because it... Gives you an idea of what Warsaw was like. Gives you an idea of what the resistance was like. And it makes much more sense to show the terror, the horror, how people rounded up, life in the the Jewish ghetto, the Warsaw Uprising, the ghetto uprising, and then even post-war. So I would advise people to go and download it. I think it's a great series to kind of give that idea. And my granddad got to relive his heydays, apparently, when he was watching it. He'd always comment. He'd be like, well, that's not what you really did, was it? Well, we didn't do that. And I was like, oh, my God, like crazy stuff coming up my grandfather. Konrad, have you got anything you want to add to this? Is there something that you hear on social media or something because I know you keep reminding us you're not a historian but you still understand history. Is there something that you that pisses you off?
3: Well, many such things but um perhaps I should just do this thing more relevant to our topic and to Polish history so I will share an anecdote with you. So, I a couple of years ago actually many years ago I met a guy In a lobby, actually, it was the lobby of the philosophy department in New York at NYU, and we started chatting. He asked me, uh, "What is my what is my specific field within philosophy?" And I said, "Philosophy of mind, cognitive science, and so on." And he said, "Like, oh, I heard about Polish logic because it's quite famous, but I didn't I didn't know that you had philosophers of mind and cognitive science." Mm -hmm. And my reaction was. So what did you think, actually? <laughs> <laughs> what you do? So perhaps this was just one instance of such a ridiculous conversation, but perhaps I should conclude with such a hope, let's say, that I don't want to go through another such conversation. Anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I this know. is somehow related to this issue of uh, to what extent Poland is regarded as part of universal history, intellectual history as well. So that's it for me.
0: <laughs> can, can I add one? Am I allowed to add one? Of
3: course.
0: I'm gonna of course. One. Yeah. I want to add one. I want to do my usual. That I so mine is also mine also starts with a story. And people usually ask me why I became a historian and family history. Usually, what what, what got you interested in Auschwitz? Well, I had a great great uncle who ended up in the first transport and the first question always is oh so you're jewish this is my issue first prisoners actually the official first prisoners were uh 30 german criminals from Sachsenhausen, but the first mass transport was 728 poles that arrived to auschwitz with a handful of polish jews not they were they were not arrested because they were being exterminated during the holocaust but because they were intellectuals part of the resistance movement or they were caught trying to cross the borders to get into uh, romania and to get to the Polish Free Army, and it really winds me up, because people think that it's just about the Holocaust, and it's not, there's so much more to that history, and uh, ironically, I was just watching a TV series, and my bud boiled within the first 60 seconds of watching the series, because it announces, it talks about Auschwitz, and the first camp, or the first part of the camp, was a prisoner of war camp, and I wanted to yell at the TV. And the person who created this series, I also yelled at them because it's absolute shite. And uh, <laughs> they keep spreading this disinformation. And it keeps coming up in popular history constantly that it was a prisoner of war camp. It was not a prisoner of war camp. So that's my my little short rant there. Is there anything that our lovely guests would like to add into our conversation? Something we've missed? Something maybe we need to talk about a little bit more?
1: I think I think we've we've done 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 it justice to a large extent. I think I mean it's just amazing. Again, like as that, that um, Conrad story just now, it just shows you how Poland is—you know—is just off off the radar for so many people, and I just find that I find it so weird. Um, and, and not just um, history, philosophy. And not just history, obviously. You know, as well, yeah. So, you know, there's so, within other disciplines, there's the same kind of uh, myopia going on. It's weird. Um, I I just find it very strange. But you know that's 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 our job in that sense in the in the history sphere anyway. Lena, you do a great job at um, you know being the sort of public face of Polish history, and that, and you do you do very good at that. And and uh, uh, you know, long may you reign. Put it that way. <laughs> long,
0: long may you all reign, because I'm not just the only one. This is a collective. Uh, I'm losing my words here. It's a collective. Uh, God, I'm thinking in Polish now. And that's it. That's the one I'm looking for. It's a collective effort because not only one person can conquer it; takes all of us. And people like Sam, who are working in academia, my God, I, I do not envy the amount of work you're having to put into to to creating these modules. It's incredible, and it's amazing that you have students that want to learn about it
1: as well. Yeah, that's
2: great. Actually, I have quite I have quite a lot of students who are on a philosophy degrees. I just like i really want to join this module and unfortunately nottingham just has so many students in the history department we can't allow philosophy students to join the <laughs> module and it's really sad <laughs> i'm it like says it's something familiar. interesting
3: about philosophers i hope
0: <laughs> okay i think this is a nice little conclusion to our subject uh, to our subject um to our topic Please remind our guests the names of your book. Sam, I can't remember. Something on DPs in the Polish zone. Polish zone? Uh, The the British (laughs) zone. I
2: mean, there was a Polish zone, but still. Um, Yeah, no, it's a horrendously long title, so (laughs) without any snappy short bit at the top, because my publisher said that it would be, uh, what was the word, Googleable. So welcome to to academia. So it's called, ah, what is it called? It is it's called Occupiers, humanitarian workers, and Polish displaced persons in the British, in British occupied Germany. And where can they Actually, get it? Where can people get it from? Um, they can get it from Bloomsbury's website, but also you know WH Smiths and Walmart apparently sell it as well. Walmart um, sell it. Walmart sell it. I've made it to Walmart.
1: <laughs> wow, in the big leagues,
2: you made it. <laughs> it will cost them a hundred and ten dollars at Walmart, but they can buy
1: it. <laughs> Roger,
0: name of your book. I know uh, my brain's dying Uh, now. uh,
1: The last uh, UK, the the Polish campaign 39 in the UK was called uh, First to Fight. In the US, it was called uh, Poland 1939. Um, Before that, there was the Devil's Alliance on the nazi soviet pact. There's a lot of Polish history in that one. Uh, And the next one, which is coming out in August in the UK, is on the Wadosh Group, and that is called The Forgers. Uh, it's in August in the UK and
3: in October in the US. Fabulous.
0: Conrad, do you have any books that people might want to buy in philosophy?
3: <laughs> well, I don't expect many uh, people actually buying my book. Uh, but still, my recent book has a great t- title. Namely, the title is The, the Embodied Philosopher. And then, then the, the subtitle is Living in Pursuit of Boundary Questions. So I guess The the meaning of boundary questions is quite specific logically, but still, to some extent, I guess that our questions, I mean, the questions that we've been trying to to ask and answer today are kind of boundary questions as well. So perhaps it fits.
0: So there you go. If you're interested in philosophy, grab yourself a philosophy book. Two fabulous historians in front of us who you need to grab the books, even though they might be £110 at Walmart. Still make sure you grab it. (laughs) And uh, also bombard Sam that she has to write a public history, like a popular history book on the subject, because I'm fed up of answering questions on her behalf. Thank you very much to our guests and uh, we'll see you uh, soon. Thank you. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash History Hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.